0: Good evening, everyone. Well, as you can see, Venerable Children is not here, Um, so we're going to do a review on a part of the first chapter of Approaching the Buddhist Path. Um, So let's take a few moments and we'll cultivate our motivation. So a few hours ago, the breaking news is that there are about 3,000 people from Guatemala trying to enter Mexico and they hope to get to the United States of America. The United Nations is asking Mexico and the United States to respect the human rights of every single person in this caravan and to consider each case individually. Try and imagine for a moment what is propelling these people to make this desperate bid to escape their country, in this case, Guatemala and try and make their way through Mexico to the U.S. In the midst of all the things that are going on in this country, it's easy to overlook or maybe even forget or push aside the fact that there's still a five-year war going in South Sudan. It's among the deadliest the world has seen in recent years. More than 382,000 people have been killed. The conflicts in Syria, Afghanistan, Sahil, the Republic of the Congo, Eastern Ukraine, Venezuela, the Rohingya crisis, the famine in Yemen. Millions of people are being profoundly affected by unrest and starvation. And so when we contemplate even for a few moments what's going on in the rest of the world, we see that our situation right here in this moment tonight is quite extraordinary. We have this amazing good fortune to have met the Dharma, and yes, we're still in samsara, but we're learning skills that will help us transform our mind so that we can not be part of the cause for this trouble, but part of the solution. So let's really open our mind and heart tonight to listening to the words of the Buddha coming through His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Venerable Thupten Children, and see how this profound wisdom can help us in every moment when we address our mind to how to use the teachings. We make effort, we listen, we reflect, we meditate. And we keep this far-reaching aspiration in our mind and heart alive to become fully awakened because it's only at that point we can truly be of benefit. So I think it's really important to really be aware of what's going on in the world, not to get depressed, but to have a reality check for ourselves, because our situation really is quite extraordinary. For those those of us sitting in the room right now at Shravasti Abbey, uh, we've had enough to eat, the weather outside has been beautiful today, we can go outside and not worry about our safety. We have this luxury of sitting here and listening to uh, some words by His Holiness the Dalai Lama written by Venerable Children to hear this incredible synthesis of both of their practices, you know, bringing us the Buddha's teachings. And, you know, so many people on the planet don't have this luxury. So many. So it's not to be taken for granted. And I think we really have to be inspired by what is going well for us and to take advantage of every moment and practice sincerely with this bodhicitta aspiration in our mind. So I'm going to read, I actually just typed it out because it's easier. We're starting on page 11 in Approaching the Buddhist Path. We might not get too much beyond this one or two paragraphs tonight. It's just so loaded. So His Holiness writes, Our world now faces an ethical crisis related to lack of respect for spiritual principles and ethical values. These cannot be forced on society by legislation or by science, and ethical conduct due to fear does not work. Rather, we must think and have conviction in the worth of ethical principles so that we want to live ethically." So, the first sentence just got my attention all week as I've been preparing for this review. We're facing an ethical crisis. It's planet-wide. And so, you know, we could spend the next hour and a bit talking about all of the breaches of ethical conduct that we know of in this country alone, and then we could expand it out to the rest of the world. And what would that do? Well, by 8 o'clock tonight, we'd be profoundly depressed, and um, we wouldn't have even actually scratched the surface. It would take many spreadsheets in Excel to list all of the things that aren't working on the planet a poor use of our time. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to focus on uh, viewpoints from the Buddhist worldview and also from uh, some psychology because I found some fascinating articles as I was looking at this ethical crisis aspect that really weave in with what His Holiness and Venerable Children are talking about. So for the people online, you didn't hear the questions that I gave out to people here, but you'll hear them in a while. But if anything, um, comes to mind if you're in the room or you have something to say or you're on online, just please, you know, type it in and Christina will pipe up. And if you're sitting in the room, just wave your hand and let's make this like a conversation and not just one person up here with a microphone talking away. One place that I turn to, the main place to sort of extrapolate what's going on in approaching the Buddhist path, is a book that His Holiness wrote a number of years ago called Ethics for the new millennium. Has anyone here read this? It's a fabulous book. I read it a while ago, but now it's, sections of it are really fresh. So His Holiness wrote this book. It came out in 1999. There's nothing in here that is dated. It all sounds like it was written yesterday. So, he says this, early on in the chapters. He says, the spiritual qualities of love and compassion Fortitude, tolerance, forgiveness, humility. I believe that these are most easily and effectively developed within the context of religious practice. I also believe that when an individual sincerely practices religion, that individual will benefit enormously. So he's setting it out like this. Most beneficial to practice a religion. He's not saying Buddhism. He's saying practice religion. So... If we just turn our attention for a minute, as I mentioned earlier in the motivation to some of the conflicts that are going on in the world, it's pretty obvious that there's very little effort on either side in any conflict that anyone is seeing the other with love and compassion. There's basically no tolerance for past harm and a total lack of forgiveness. So what we hear over, over and over again in conflicts in the world, Fuel it on an individual level, and then it becomes like countrywide and beyond. You killed members of my family. I will ensure that members of your family are killed. I can mobilize troops to move into what I consider part of my country because I want to. When you fly into my airspace, I will send fighter jets, or I will bomb you from the ground. If you trespass on my property, I'll shoot you. If you don't respond to my command, I will shoot you. If I feel that you're endangering my life, I will shoot you. In May of this year, I didn't really know about this until recently, a fellow by the name of Greg Gianforte, a Republican businessman running for Montana's lone seat in the House of Representatives, got angry at a journalist who was asking him questions about healthcare care policy. Gianforti then picked up the journalist, Ben Jacobs of The Guardian, and slammed him into the ground. He then, Gianforti, then grabbed Jacobs by the neck with both hands and slammed him into the ground behind him. And then he began punching the man, and he was yelling something to the effect at this reporter of, I'm sick of this. So, of course, the police charged Gianforti with assault, and he pleaded guilty. And in the past two days, for those of you who aren't online, there's some guests who aren't, Gianforti has been congratulated for his behavior by a person in the United States government. Congratulated. Right on. Way to go. So there's no question that we're living in an ethical crisis. It's happening here, it's happening all over the planet, but it seems to be very intense here in this um, country. And so, as I was thinking about this situation here, I started thinking about the fact that we were reintroduced. It's never gone away, it's always been present in the history of the human planet, human beings. But the phrase, hate crimes, has, you know, been reinvigorated in this country. So, does anyone here want to say what you know? What is a hate crime? What comes to mind when you think of this,
1: this phrase, hate crime? It would be being verbally or physically assaulted because of belonging to a specific group that yeah. was, people were biased against. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like an
2: unprovoked attack the person who's harmed didn't do anything to the perpetrator.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly. One definition on the FBI site, because they deal with this all the time, is this. You've already mentioned a lot of this. A hate crime is a traditional offense like murder, arson, or vandalism with an added element of bias. So the FBI has defined a hate crime as a criminal offense against a person or property motivated in whole or in part by an offender's bias against a race, a religion, a disability, a sexual orientation, ethnicity, gender, or gender identity. It's a hate crime. So then I got interested about, you know, Of course, all of us in the room, all of us who are spiritual practitioners, would think to ourselves immediately, well, I'd never do something like that. But I can point out people who have. So that's not the point of this investigation. The point is to think about the fact that, you know, we've been here since beginningless time. For sure we've done everything, as Venerable Children reminds us. In the past, likely we've created some kind of hate crime. And then to look at these individuals who are doing this, have done it, and to see what their situation is, not with a mind of criticism, but with a mind of compassion and understanding, because for sure we've done this in the past. So, this one article I found is absolutely fascinating, and this helps explain from a psychology point of view why someone would head in this direction, and then later on we'll look at the Buddha's point of view in this. Now, this article was written shortly after 9-11. So this is focusing on one group of people. But this is the conclusions people were reaching in in 2001. When people face a crisis they often revert to an unfortunate human tendency to protect their own while finding a scapegoat to blame the problem on. These propensities emerged full-blown in the days following the September 11th terrorist attacks on New York and the Pentagon. Arab Americans, who had previously been blended into the crowd, suddenly became targets of suspicion, prey to verbal bullying, email harassment, store lootings, and even murder. Arab students, fearing for their safety, fled the United States and returned home. We're in a mode where we feel like we have to protect ourselves, where we feel that everyone who is clearly not us needs to be scrutinized says Evan Straw, professor of psychology at University of Massachusetts. When people are victimized as individuals or as a group, it creates a diminished sense of self, a view that the world is a more dangerous place. Most Americans would never overtly act on the feelings of mistrust that may have developed since the attacks, but a small portion of Americans have participated in incidents ranging from name hurling to full-blown hate crimes, like the much-publicized murder of a Sikh gas station owner by an Arizona man, or another person's attempt to run over a Pakistani woman in Huntington, New York, in a parking lot. It's hard to say how many of these incidents have occurred nationwide since September 11th, but as of September 30th, the FBI was investigating about 90 alleged hate crimes and other incidents just around that time. Social and clinical psychologists who study these phenomena note important distinctions between people who commit hate crimes and those who may experience a newfound suspicion of Arab Americans and act on it in lesser ways. But it's also important to view biased reactions on a continuum and in a cultural and political context. It's possible, they say, that a deeper education about Arab American citizens may help prevent hate crimes against them. So this article goes on about how, you know, people will often put, lump everyone into a group when they hear about some atrocity and then everyone who's in that group is painted with the same brush. Now here's something interesting that they've found in looking at people who do commit hate crimes. Those who commit hate crimes are not mentally ill in in the traditional sense. They're not diagnosably schizophrenic or manic-depressive. What they do share, however, is a high level of aggression and antisocial behaviour. These people are not psychotic, but they're consistently very troubled, they're very disturbed, they're very problematic members of our community who pose a high risk for future violence. Here's something to remember about these people. Childhood histories of these offenders show high levels of parental or caretaker abuse and use of violence to solve family problems. So, when you hear that, doesn't that immediately open your heart to the fact that these people have been suffering for a long time, and they're lashing out in a, tr- in a way to try and alleviate their suffering. Gay bashers, for instance, commute long distances to pursue their victims in spots they're likely to find them, suggesting a strong premeditative component to these crimes. In addition to those who commit hate crimes, these people show a history of such acts, actions beginning with smaller incidents and then moving up to more serious ones. Unfortunately, the current social climate may give such individuals a chance to act out their feelings in ways that are more socially acceptable than usual. That was written in 2001. This could be have been written half an hour ago. So, the current social climate... They give such individuals a chance to act out their feelings simply because they think it's socially acceptable. So then they look at why do we act as we do. This is very interesting. Long-standing research by this team and other social psychologists shows that people tend to see groups they're not part of as more homogeneous than their own group. A phenomenon known as the out-group homogeneity effect. We could just simplify that to saying others. When you meet a person who is a member of an out-group, you're less likely to individuate them, less likely to pay attention to individual characteristics than when you meet members of your in-group. That's because stereotypes concerning out-group members are stronger than those of in-group members. People are therefore more willing to ignore individuating information about members of outgroups, lumping them all into a single category. I can see that lids are starting to close here, so I don't want to bore you, but I'm going to skip to the really critical points here. When people don't know much about a group, they're likely to ascribe to them the notion of a cultural essence, a sort of innate temperament they erroneously believe defines the entire culture. So this happened apparently to the Arab Americans. Yes. I have a comment that I think that
3: um, sort of goes well with what you just read. In that in Sacramento some years ago after September 11 I don't remember the exact year but two Sikh elders were killed while I think they were walking in their neighborhood. And I remember reading the news about it uh, and the theory was that at that time Al-Qaeda's leader was pictured wearing a turban and of course the Sikh elders wear turbans. And so they were uh, mistaken as Arabs or Muslims and so they were gone down. And I think that falls really well with how you're saying about how people generalize the other and lump everyone in the category as different from mine. Mm -hmm. And then they act out in these
0: ways. So So I'm going to skip ahead. There's fascinating information I can give you the website if you get interested in this. So then the last part of this particular article talks about turning bias around. Psychologists have long thought hard about how to ameliorate the kinds of prejudice and bias crimes that have flared up since September 11th with the awareness that such reactions have long historical antecedents. One way is to apply our own American values, inclusion, and the right to free speech, for example, to our understanding of Arab Americans as well as to Arabs and Muslims outside our borders. The Bush administration, you may not know this, took an admirable step towards this by telling citizens it was un-American to act in a biased manner toward people of other races religions, or ethnicities. What have we forgotten here? So it's un-American to act in a biased manner towards people of other races, religions, or ethnicities. Likewise, the media and individual citizens can promote the idea that we're a nation of immigrants ourselves who came from highly divergent backgrounds. How are we forgetting this one? Likewise, real contact with Arab-Americans can fisi- facilitate understanding as can learning about their culture, and from our own history, notes this one researcher, it really helps people see that we're all the same. Now who says that all the time? Well, all of our teachers, his only is the Dalai Lama, Venerable Tipton Children. They go on to say this, so if you're a history buff, too bad Venerable Sultrim isn't here right now, she'll probably know this, maybe. They go on to say, one thing that many Americans don't know, for example, is that German Americans were scapegoating, goaded during World War I, and they were victims of beatings, house burnings, and other forms of violence. People were simply terrified of these people, thinking that they were going to do atrocious things. In 1917 a lot of German Americans were so frightened that they changed their names. So there's a lot of Smiths r- walking around today who used to be Schmidt. If we view, if we view the present present crisis the right way, it can be an important opportunity to broaden our horizons as Americans and as world citizens. That then led me to thinking about yes, Fenomenema. Go for it, everyone! Come on, this is a this is a conversation tonight. I think also
3: when we um, when we look at the other with eyes of hate and bias, we forget or ignore the contributions that they have made, not just to our well-being but to the well-being of the entire world. For example. Uh, um, the Arab cultures um, contributed great knowledge in science, algebra, medicine, astronomy, architecture, not to mention philosophy, poetry. And it's like all of a sudden we forget that. We forget that many of the things that we enjoy originated and are possible because of the thinking, because of the work because of the effort of people in other cultures countries and areas of the world and so it's just um i think when you talk about when we talk about ignorance in buddhism there's also another kind of ignorance Mm -hmm. not to be aware of how other cultures have contributed Mm -hmm. to our well-being excellent point thank you
0: So then that led me to remember a conference that Venerable Chinni and Venerable Sultram and I went to in December of 2016, Um, right after the November election, and this is not a political talk tonight, I'm going to just tell you that, but these are just the facts, there was a spike in hate crimes, and this led some people in Spokane, Washington, to quickly organize with the Gonzaga, there's a hate institute there. and they organized with um, a number of groups, people in Spokane. Let's see, where is it here? So they, it was organized with, in conjunction with Gonzaga, the Spokane Faith and Values, the Spok- Spokane Interfaith Council, the Spokane County Human Rights Task Force, and the Gonzaga Institute for Hate Studies. And so we got an email, I don't know, two days before this um, talk on Saturday that year. And so we... We jumped at the opportunity to come. We phoned the right people. We found, found out it was sold out. Sorry, you can't come. And then we phoned another right person. He said, please come. And so it was a, an evening at Gonzaga where there were many breakout groups. And these are all groups being hosted by people who are in, representing minorities. And I can't tell you the warmth and the, the communion that was going on there. Were you there, Tracy? It was like there were people from all... Faiths and groups just converged at Gonzaga, and then we were split off into different areas and rooms and hearing different people talk about their experiences with you know hate crimes and what to do about it and It was so uplifting and uh, one of the breakout groups that I went to was hosted by the Muslim people in Spokane, so I went to the room where it was, and it was um a medium-sized room, and it started filling up, and it started filling up, and pretty soon the room was full, and we had to move to another room, so that was more room. And I was just rejoicing that so many people wanted to know what's going on for our Muslim brothers and sisters in Spokane and, you know, across the country. And so the people who spoke at that session were very eloquent. They were in a very peaceful state of mind. They were not making accusatory statements at all. They were describing what was going on for people in Spokane who are Muslim and people right across the continent since the election. So this was less than four weeks since the election, and there was just a spike in this kind of activity. So we're talking about ethical conduct here and this crisis. So someone who was speaking that night was pointing out that... um, The number of hate crimes committed in 2016 reached a five-year high fueled by a spike around the November election. The Anti-Defamation League reports that anti-Semitic activity, such as harassment and vandalism of synagogues, rose 57% from 2016 to 2017, 57% rise. The Council on American-Islamic Relations tallied a 24% rise in anti-Muslim bias incidents in the first half of 2017. So when people are looking at this kind of activity, the comment made by Brian Levin, who is director of the Center for Study of Hate and Extremism at California University, said, the dry kindling was already there. The president's invocation of various negative stereotypes has both coalesced, solidified, and in some ways normalized the stereotypes in a mainstream discourse. This is what's going on. So then I got very curious about, you know, okay, so what's going on in my mind when I read things like this? And then I meet people of different cultures all the time in different situations. And I got thinking about a friend of ours who does diversity training. And I remembered her sending us a link about how to start you know, digging at exposing our hidden bias. Because we all have biases. And as spiritual practitioners, as Buddhist practitioners, we're working hard at you know equalizing everyone and getting rid of that, but we have a lot of hidden bias. So there's this one test out there that was developed by Harvard researchers, and it's called Test Yourself for Hidden Bias. So I tried this yesterday, but it wasn't the best situation because I was answering the phone, I was answering emails, and I was trying to do this test on my iPad, and then I saw that I wasn't doing it fast enough. You're supposed to do this test, and you can hit these places on the screen with your fingers, but you're supposed to go really quickly, and that's the one aspect of the test that can expose these hidden biases. And I was going too slowly and being a Buddhist. (laughs) So, you know, the the adjudication I got was like I was sort of on automatic and I was, you know, trying to be friendly. But I thought you might be interested to hear the kinds of topics that you can explore with this kind of test. And then maybe you can find people in your community and do diversity training with them to, you know, expose this. Because if we don't know what our biases are, well, I'll ask you the question in a minute. So here's the sum of, some of the topics you can ex- you can explore. I looked at... Uh, Arab, Muslim, and other people. But you could investigate your feelings about disabled people as as opposed to abled, people of different religions, uh, use of weapons versus harmless objects, people who are fat versus people who are thin, Afri- African Americans versus white, young versus old, Asian versus European, gay versus straight, gender versus career, gender and science light skin, dark skin. It goes on and on. And so we might think, you know, I'm really getting a handle on the equanimity meditation. You know, I've got this handle, friend, enemy, stranger, but then someone else pops up in our face and all of a sudden we're speaking in ways that, you know, it might be harsh speech, it might be very judgmental, and we haven't probed enough in our mind where these hidden biases are. So... The good news is, is that a lot of people are interested in finding, about, finding out about their hidden biases. And um, last fall, Jan Willis, a professor who was here at the Abbey, I think she was here two years ago or last year? Yeah. So she was invited to teach at my college. And so she was getting them to t- take a look at bias and how it, you know, surfaces in their minds. And she gave some ex- excellent uh, pointers for people as to how to work with this. So the first thing she told these people was, listen to progressive radio, PBS, NPR, BBC, you can imagine the ones she didn't name. Visit African-American sections in bookstores, go to ethnically inspired museums, volunteer at homeless shelters, at food pantries in kitchens. Create a, or contribute to an online public resource center webpage. Become an ally by understanding the other. Learn about and follow Black Lives Matter and say her name. When, when I did this test, what's very interesting in doing the test, even if you try and manipulate your answers and try and be a virtuous person, you can't help but notice that your mind is leaning sometimes in a certain direction, and it's just horrendous to see that, but it's so helpful. And the people who devised this test said, you know, they devised it for research purposes, but they did say this, if you take some of these tests, the effects of the test, regardless of your score, will stay with you for quite some time, and it'll probably encourage you to do more investigation in your mind. So one thing that I ask people to ask about, to think about here and to maybe share right now is, When you've encountered bias in your own experience, what did you do to work with it? Or maybe you've done some training or you know about fields in your line of work that uh, there are certain techniques out there to help you work with bias and how to overcome it. Because the hidden bias is what drives us to commit errors in our ethical conduct. So I know you haven't had much time to think about it biases we have? It's easy to point the finger, but what about the biases we have?
4: Well, one of them is is that when I was here at the Abbey, we had all of our young adults here from the first few years. Every once in a while, I would have a conversation with our young ones that would say that elders have got to work a lot harder on gaining their respect, that just being an elder in the world, or older, quite a bit old, like a few decades older, having some life experience under your belt, having some, you know, hard knocks and successes and stuff, did not, in a lot of their minds, automatically assume that you get respect from young ones, that that didn't come with the territory where on generationally, the way that I was raised, parents, elders, quote, authority figures, just by the fact that they had been in the world longer than me, it was just sort of an assumption that you you would give them some garner of some respect, So um, I would argue with them a lot about that. And then I found out that after those first few conversations, the first few young adult uh, course that we had here, I didn't, I found myself being, um, wanting to, I was a little bit distrustful of them. Mm. Um, There was a little bit of, I guess because it was just a generational difference, but it was like you, you have you have to prove, you have to earn my respect, no matter how old you are, irregardless of who what you've lived, whatever. When it comes to me, you have to earn it. And I was really turned off by that. Yeah. And in and, and those particular two young people, it really, I just kind of pulled back. I felt sad about it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think, I don't know if it was pride or not, but there was just some wanting some sort of acknowledgement that, you know, when you're 30, 40 years younger, older than somebody, there might be something in there that you've learned that maybe would become in handy. So I found that I have a little bit of an ageism bias mm-hmm. sometimes with younger people, if they've got that particular attitude. I don't see it as much anymore. And I certainly try to work on mine with not making that expectation that this is a gen- different generation and that they have different expectations of people. They want They want to be met. And they want to meet people sort of straight on, fresh on, with not having assumptions about who they are supposed to respect and who they're not. So I've been working on my own bias, but I did recognize that I have this ageism bias at, at certain times when I get into certain conversations with young ones. And then the other one that I have that just keeps coming around and around, which I've already spoken about, is that people who have a lot of wealth and have a lot of power and have a lot of influence, I just want them to take a lot more responsibility for how much more influence they can have in the world. And when they don't take care and they harm or the self-interest becomes so out of proportion to the amount of wealth that they have, I get really, really biased against them. So wealthy people, powerful people, influential people who use that as more for self-serving, self-interest, Sometimes at the cost of people that are more vulnerable, more marginalized, I just really get really, really biased and really angry towards them. So those are my two maids that I've been working on for a while.
3: Thanks very much, Cynthia. So I have noticed um, several biases in my mind. A big one is uh, people who use recreational drugs. And um, I find that I I'm quite intolerant in that regard, Um, and I find that that puts me at odds with quite a bit of the younger generation who have grown in a more uh, open and tolerant era than I did. And so I have a problem with that, Um, which I'm working on. I also am very judgmental of people who own guns. Uh, to me, that's a big uh, thing that I have to work on to normalize, especially because in California, I think I um, quite didn't know that people own guns and had, I mean, their culture is different in regards to guns in California, I think, than here. Yeah, I think those are some of my. Actually, no. There is a bigger one that, but I've worked on this for a while, so it's, I'm doing better with it. And that is um, people who lack education, and so I uh, I had some judgmental attitudes about that, about people who did not, mm, yeah, complete in level of education.
0: There's a wealth of experience in this room. So now we're going to hear from Venmo. (laughs) Jigme.
1: So one of my biases is uh, law enforcement officers. And I think this stems from 60s, being in the 60s and protesting and having (laughs) police running after me (laughs) with nightsticks. Uh, Yeah, I have to work with my mind a lot, too. And it's... There's bias and there's also fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot of times, and to me, under the bias is fear, mm-hmm. more, more than not. Mm-hmm. And then also um, people with guns, also. Mm-hmm. Um, one day I was filling the car up in, uh, when I was in Idaho, coming back from Coeur d'Alene, and the guy next to me was filling up his truck, and he had a, a holster and a gun on his hip. And he like... Okay, let me go to another gas station, you know. (laughs) So that was just pretty much pure fear. But, you know, I thought about that one and I thought, you know, isn't it interesting how in that moment I'm fearful and this guy is wearing this gun because he's fearful. Mm. So here we're the same. You know, it's so interesting. Mm
0: -hmm. So while you're thinking of the story that you're going to share, everyone in the room... When I was still teaching, yeah, I'm going to get to you next. <laughs> Everyone's going to get a turn, don't worry. I discovered that I was really um, biased against people, families, when I heard that their children had been taken away from him, them by social services because of their physical abuse towards these kids. And so there was one night that I had to face this, and it really helped me with this bias. So it was the, you know, the thing that everyone doesn't like to do, meet the teacher, you know, parent-teacher interviews. And we had actually transformed this kind of meeting so that it was the kids showing their parents their work, which really, really made it actually joyful, if you can believe it. Um, So I had this long list of people, and I knew that the mom at the end of the list was probably not going to show up because she was in that category of people who had her children removed because of past abuses and... Her daughter was in my class, and um, I just thought, yeah, she said she's going to come, but probably not. And um, this was in 2000 and, let's see, when was it, 2005. So, you know, and it was Canada too, and we didn't have this idea of school shootings or people coming in and being dangerous. But her her meeting time with me was actually at 8 o'clock at night. And I clued in at about 7.30 that night that everyone else had left the school. Their interviews were over, and I was the only one left in the school. Even the janitor said goodnight. And so I thought, well, you know what? I know the one door is open, because he told me which one is open. And I thought, "Eh, she's not going to come. She's just not going to come. And I didn't really want her to come. So, you know, I wait around, 8 o'clock comes and goes, and I go and try and figure out how to lock the door, and I can't lock the door. So then I have to call security. And as I'm walking back to the room, I hear these running footsteps coming down the hall. Ms. Becker, Ms. Becker, I'm here! So here's the person I'm feeling this tremendous aversion for. Tremendous aversion because of what I've heard that she's done to her daughter, my student. And I'm realizing now that we're in the building alone. It's a very big old school. So she flops down in front of the chair in front of me, and I said, hi, how are you? And she said, oh, I'm just exhausted, but I'm so glad I'm here. And I'm thinking, "Hmm, glad you are. And so I just said, you know, I started telling her about her daughter who was doing really well at that point in time. And this was actually a special ed class. But I could just tell I was feeling this tremendous aversion for this person and no open-heartedness at all. And for some reason, she didn't want to talk to me about how her daughter was doing. She wanted me to hear about how she was doing and how she had turned her life around in the last five years. And I just thought, okay, you know what? I don't care how long this is going to take. I better sit here. So for the next 45 minutes, she told me about the fact that she had gone back to school. She was taking carpentry. She had gotten all of her children back. She was really sad about her past with her children, but she had kids really young. She was completely stressed. She was raised in an abusive family. She didn't know what else to do. And the only way she could keep her kids in line was to beat them. And this gave her tremendous heartbreak in that she was also part of her schooling and her financing was hinging on her going for therapy, which she was doing. And, you know, by the time she left, it was like we were best friends. I mean, this this is what His Holiness is talking about, this research on how we don't know much about a certain group of people or a person, and our mind just paints them in this little narrow little box and we don't see their humanity, and she shared with me her life to that point, and that she was so grateful that her daughter was going to school and that she had what her mother hoped was a different kind of you know traje- trajectory into the world and her hopes for her other children and the rest of her life
5: and I was so glad that you know she gave me this gift. Um, the bias I can think of is quite curious, um, and it has a lot to do with just my interactions with people from a particular race and age and group, right? Uh, it's against um, middle-aged white men. <laughs> um, and I think because I'm just thinking back on my own experience. When I first went to France when I was 18 on uh, to visit a friend, and I stayed there for a month, Every time I went to the park, some middle-aged French guy would come and try and talk to me. And I, was, I would innocently try and practice French and realize, wait, this is not going where I think it is. So already very uncomfortable. And then in my early 20s in Singapore, I used to go uh, clubbing. And at all these clubs, you would see a lot of middle-aged white men hitting on young Asian women. And I just found this disgusting, <laughs> shocking, puzzling. Like I, I you know... The whole like racial dynamic was so weird to me, and then when I when I had my first job, uh, I had a supervisor who was a middle-aged white man who sexually harassed me, and I quit that job. So you know, in my head, everybody in that category was like an evil perpetrator person, <laughs> like ugh. Yeah. Uh, And I had school teachers who were. Uh, middle-aged white men who also had inappropriate relationships with students. So, you know, everything in my mind was just collecting this data, (laughs) filing them in that category. And it was there. And I wasn't entirely aware of it until I came to the Abbey. And then I met middle-aged white men (laughs) who were very nice. It was really funny. I could could really see it here, you know. I met one of our Abbey friends. And immediately I saw this person and thought, oh... And then we had to sit opposite from each other at this small table in this room. And I was like, oh no, (laughs) what are we ever going to say to each other? We talked about each other's families. And the next time I saw this person, they were with their child, and they were so kind to their child. And I was like, oh, (laughs) come on, you know, (laughs) come on. Yeah, so that really shook up my, my, it helped me see my bias that I had been carrying for a long time, and the anger and having to release that. Mm -hmm,
6: I have um, some bias, and i um overcome came at mm, step by step. I'm not still over it, but um people men were um especially men were sexually abusing children and also women and um then I started to support Raman Shikma with the prison project and I had some uh, connection with some of the inmates who have done sexual offense and um I started to think about them differently because what they thought was more, you know, a different person. Like, And then also when I was teaching about, you know, most of the offenders' um, crimes have been done under drug abuse um, or uh, t- taking drugs. And mm-hmm. and generally um, I learned to see people that people can change. Yeah, Of course, mm-hmm. some are really sick, mm-hmm. but there are also people who can change who had very you know, just have their own experiences in their childhood, and that's actually a cause for me to develop some compassion. That's still challenging, you know, when mm-hmm. they're very, when men abuse children, that's really hard for me to mm-hmm. get over it. So um,
7: in my work, I've been interested in medical intuition, and mm. what I find with bias is it's a mental shortcut. So Mm. you see something, you immediately think you understand it, that Mm. you know it, so that you don't have to think through a lot of steps in Mm -hmm. terms of your interaction. And you see that a lot with the police, where, you know, they Mm. have a particular intuition based on their work experience that says, these kind of people might do these kind of actions. And so... um, I find in medicine that that's the same thing. You know, like emergency room doctors have mm. a particular bias, um, especially like against people with mental illness. And mm. um, But in my own work, testing myself to see, am I, am I really just, is what I'm thinking after not having done a good history yet based on years of experience and medical intuition that you build up over time, mm-hmm. or is it really bias? And just checking that with mm-hmm. myself um, frequently, I find it to be a very interesting intellectual exercise. Mm-hmm. And I teach medical students too. And so, working with them on making sure that they don't prematurely jump to conclusions about people, mm. thinking that they know something about them when really they don't, um, because you can, those kind of shortcuts actually can. You know, result in people losing their lives, um, not being treated well, um, feeling like they never want to come back Mm -hmm. to see a provider because of how they were treated. So I think it's a really important thing for every kind of profession, you know, just like being a monastic too, you know, figuring out what your biases are so Mm -hmm. that you can have a warm and welcoming um, presence with people so that they do stay engaged with whatever it is that um, either it's you know religious practices or going to see your doctor or interacting well with the police or mm-hmm. getting your gas pumped <laughs> without having to go to various different gas stations.
2: <laughs> so Abby, we have a lot of guests coming here and they're from different backgrounds. And so I've been able to see how my mind makes people into other. So I'll pick up on some quality that they have and kind of push them away. And I thought that this is pretty ridiculous because um, if we weren't at the Abbey and I met them and they were Buddhist and they told me that they were Buddhist or, you know, interested in Buddhism, I would be thrilled to meet them and I would love them so much. It's just (laughs) like the context matters. But the fact is my mind is always looking for reasons to distance or it seems this is a habit that I have. Um, trying to pick on things that make other people different. And it's especially strong with the white men, <laughs> as Renewal Jamcho said. And, you know, I studied sociology and colonialism. And so I have this kind of, you know, deep resentment against um, history, you know, what's happened. And I, I carry that as a woman of color. So it's also this grasping at an identity. And i I'm trying to let that go because I realize it causes a lot of suffering for me and it also creates distance between me and other people. And one funny thing is that I guess in my last work, I I was the youngest one and I always felt like nobody took me seriously. And so I come here and there's somebody else who's younger than me and suddenly I'm like, oh, they they don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) I'm older than they are. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what I was just so upset about. And I said, how could people possibly think that way? You know, young people have so much to contribute. And it's like, I don't know where it came from. But I saw it and I was like, nope, this has got to go. And then someone online um, Hmm. said that they are aware of their bias against people who have a strong political opposition to some of the things they hold dear. I'm aware of the tendency to demonize them and, as you have said, to lump them into one large bunch without seeing them as individuals. It is hard to work to remember their individuality. Thank you for this. And then someone else says, Right now I'm trying to work with my bias in regards to someone in my workplace who is rude and unkind to myself and others. If I don't watch my mind, I can start to dislike the person and experience
0: So thank you to everyone who bravely shared, and it took some time, but I think it's really worthwhile in this political climate to not, you know, it's so easy to point the finger and to say, oh, you know, that person is like that, but the real work comes in looking and really digging at our own biases, and I'm just really inspired to keep looking, because there's lots of things lurking in my mind. I just know it that I haven't figured out yet. And it's affecting what I say and do. Now, I don't, I'm not afraid that I'm going to commit a hate crime. But, you know, some people who are driven by these fears, you know, like the guy wearing the gun, um, people who are driven by fear and these biases that they're not even aware of, they're going to potentially do very dangerous things. So we know there's that chemistry going there and also to have compassion for these people who end up doing this. Thermonima, and then we're gonna go to His Holiness.
3: So I think um, uh, most of you know that I worked uh, with Child Protective Services for 14 years. And so I developed this identity of protecting children. And so when I would go out out in the town to go shopping, uh, the supermarket, the mall, the store, if I observed a parent um, disciplining their children in a way that I judged to be harsh and overly punitive, and of course I carry my phone with me, and I knew who to call to call in these situations. So I would actually uh, follow them <laughs> um, around the store. Um, to kind of try and monitor what they were doing to the child. And always with my phone in hand, thinking as soon as this person does something, you know, I know the number to call in my office so that somebody can, you know. This was my mentality. And it just went, you know, and I would do this with Adriana in tow to, you know, also. And then it came to a point where she said, Stop and look what you're doing. I mean, she told me this. Do you see what you're doing? You're just following people randomly around the store just because they happen to be disciplining their children. And I'm going, oh, wow. That is so true. I mean, this is my work life going amok, like really getting a hold of me and making me see things that, you know, probably not there. So I had to really stop and look at how my mind was working with that whole scenario. And it took me so, it was so hard to stop doing that, to just like walk away from the scene or from the situation. And I can see how, you know, maybe for some policemen uh, that some of that minds also run mm. in in their um, lives because they're you're Seeing these things over and over and over again, and so yeah, it was an eye-opening experience for me to see how my mind was sort of running mm-hmm. amok with that. Yeah. yeah,
0: thank you. So, in this book by His Holiness Ethics for the New Millennium, there's a chapter called "The Ethic of of Restraint," and um, it's just really is so very helpful to hear this point of view, and we know this, but it's beautifully said. He says, I believe that developing the compassion on which happiness depends, demands a two-pronged approach. On the one hand, we need to restrain those factors which inhibit compassion. On the other, we need to cultivate those which are conducive to it. As we've seen, what is conducive to compassion is love, patience, or fortitude, tolerance, forgiveness, humility, and so on. What inhibits compassion is the lack of inner restraint, which we have identified as the source of all unethical conduct. Lack of inner restraint. We find that by transforming our habits and dispositions, we can begin to perfect our overall state of heart and mind, that from which all our actions spring. The first thing then, because the spiritual qualities conducive to compassion entail positive ethical conduct, is to cultivate a habit of inner discipline. I don't deny that this is a major undertaking, but at least we're familiar with the principles. For example, knowing its destructive potential, we restrain both ourselves and our children from indulging in drug abuse. However, it's important to recognize that restraining our response to negative thoughts and emotions is not a matter of just suppressing them. Insight into their destructive nature is crucial. Merely being told that envy, potentially a very powerful and destructive emotion, is negative cannot provide a strong defense against it. If we order our lives externally but ignore the inner dimension, inevitably we will find that doubt, anxiety and other afflictions develop and happiness eludes us. This is because, unlike physical discipline, true inner or spiritual discipline, cannot be achieved by force, but only through voluntary and deliberate effort. In other words, conducting ourselves ethically consists in more than merely obeying laws and precepts. So, further on in the book, he says this, Negative thoughts and emotions are what obstruct our most basic aspiration to be happy and to avoid suffering. When we act under their influence, we become oblivious to the impact our actions have on others— They are thus the cause of our destructive behavior, both towards others and to ourselves. Murder, scandal, and deceit all have their origin in afflictive emotion. This is why I say that the undisciplined mind, that is, the mind under the influence of anger, hatred, greed, pride, selfishness, and so on, is the source of all our troubles, which do not fall into the category of unavoidable suffering like sickness, old age, death, and so on. Our failure to check our response to the afflictive emotions opens the door to suffering for both ourselves and others. So this book continually comes back to the fact that we have to cultivate this inner discipline. We have to use restraint. We have to start identifying our afflictions and employing the antidotes to the afflictions because otherwise we're just going to be stuck. He goes on to say, To this end, we need to pay close attention and be aware of our body and its actions. Be aware of our speech and what we say, and of our hearts and minds and what we think and feel. We must be on the lookout for the slightest negativity and keep asking ourselves such questions as Am I happier when my thoughts and emotions are negative and destructive? Or am I happier when they're wholesome? What is the nature of consciousness? Does it exist in and of itself, or does it exist in dependence on other factors? We need to think, think, think. We should be like a scientist who collects data, analyzes it, and draws the appropriate conclusion. Gaining insight into our own negativity is a lifelong task, and one which is capable of almost infinite refinement. But, he says, unless we undertake this task we will be unable to see where the necessary changes need to occur in our lives. As we know, His Holiness has been interested in this concept of secular ethics for quite some time now. And uh, Geshe Dadul, who was here in September, um, was telling us about this new curriculum that's being developed. Because His Holiness keeps saying, you know, there has to be this change, it has to come really at a grassroots level, and where best to bring about this change, but, you know, in schools, and it has to be a secular approach at this point to address this ethical crisis. Um, so when Geshe Dadu was here, he shared this postcard with us, and it's uh, this curriculum that's been developed over the past few years that they're now testing out, The whole concept is called C-learning, and this curriculum is going to have a big launch next year in New Delhi in April of 2019. So here's the thinking that uh, His Holiness has been asking people to put into motion. C-learning is a new K-12 education program providing high-quality, easy-to-use curricula and resources for educators and students developed at Emory University and emphasizing holistic child development. It's called C-Learning, uses the latest insights from scientific research to build upon and expand best practices in social and emotional learning programs. It includes new topics such as attention training, the cultivation of compassion for self and others, resiliency skills, systems thinking, and ethical discernment. So the hope is, is that once this program is launched next April, that people all over the world will get interested. It's very challenging if you've been a parent in a school system to see new curriculum introduced. The usual response from the teachers is that I have to do something else. I've already got this much to do. But His Holiness is hoping that, you know, with schools showing changes in students, that, you know, it's word of mouth, that people get excited about the changes that that they're seeing in schools and certainly I think that this is very exciting and its kids who can really bring this change about and I saw this in two areas when I was teaching the one place that we put a lot of effort for a while was not smoking and so the kids from grade actually from kindergarten right through to grade 12 got this health part of the curriculum that focused on the disadvantages of smoking. We had people come and visit the schools who were actually dying of cancer from smoking. There was a big push. And so the kids would go home and tell their parents and harass their parents who were still smoking. And they'd be telling them the latest statistics. And all kinds of times I would hear my colleagues tell me, you know, the parents are coming, there saying to us, you know, well, I had to quit smoking this week because my child just won't leave me alone, and they're telling me all these scary statistics, so the kids are going to take it and fly with it. They're going to be the ones who make the change. And then the other place we saw this was with recycling. So. You know, in Alberta, recycling really hit a big high 20 years ago, and they just kept at it in school, and it's part of the science curriculum. And kids in every grade and every schoolroom, they're recycling and reusing. And we'd hear the same things. The kids would go home, they'd go through the garbage like they would they do here, and they would pull out pull out the things that were not garbage, and they would harass their parents. You know, we can't do this to the planet. So I think the big hope is that you know. The kids will be the leaders here too, um, and make this change. Um, earlier this year, His Holiness was at a meeting of educators in India, and um, the article is talking about him being the pioneer of secular ethics for the 21st century. And he spent uh, this seminar with about 150 vice chancellors from 100, uh, for, uh, so 150 vice chancellors from universities throughout India. And His Holiness spoke to them and said this, Through an education system which is motivated by compassion, we can expand the sense of well-being of all people, not just for your own circle, but will eventually bring peace to an entire human population on this planet. At a young age, our basic human nature is most alive. This is His Holiness speaking. But once children are enrolled in modern education, they gradually develop the sense of we and they. So the kind of education, instead of helping human beings, rather breeds too much discrimination of we and they. And so he's pointing out one of the failures of modern education. He said, The existing system has overshadowed the basic human natures with an extreme materialistic attitude and culture. I was reading another place um, that has done studies about how early children learn to become biased. And one of the studies said that children as early as age three can pick up these biased statements from their families and in the neighborhood, and then they bring them to kindergarten. And for sure, as a teacher, I saw this quite a bit. You know, the kids would be playing on the playground, Um, somebody would get mad, and instead of throwing rocks or sticks, out would come the racial slurs. And I found this was quite amazing. At one point I was teaching a grade four class, and that particular year we had an influx of kids from Kurdistan. So these were Kurds who were running from Saddam Hussein. And their families were not literate. Their families were sheep herders, just you know, very simple people. They made it to Jordan. They got in a the lottery. They won the lottery to come to Canada. They get shipped on a plane to Edmonton, Alberta, and boom, here they are in my grade four class. They don't know English, nothing. So in this same class, I had a kid from Hong Kong, and he too was learning English. And then I had these other kids. There was a class of 30. It was a very stressful year. But at one point, The kid from Hong Kong and the girl who was Kurdish got into a fit of rage with each other. I came in too late, of course. I have no clue what was going on. But I can tell you, for second-language people, they were hurling the racial slurs like nobody's business. And it was nasty, and it was mean. But it was astounding, because they were getting some English practice. (laughs) It was very effective, what they did. So kids are like sponges. And I think the concern with His Holiness is that you know, let's get these kids when they're really young. Let's teach them about, you know, seeing everyone as equal and valuing people, regardless of their color, regardless of their education or their ability to speak English or whatever, and get this curriculum that's K to 12. So I think it's fabulously exciting, and this is going to be enrolled next year. So if you know people who are teachers, we've got some more of these. So we did two paragraphs from His holiness's book tonight. And I'm going to close with a very beautiful, I think the most beautiful part of this book. And it's an appeal to all of us. And this is what His Holiness is saying to each and every single human being on the planet. He says, Therefore, with my two hands joined, I appeal to you, the reader, the listener, To ensure that you make the rest of your life as meaningful as possible, do this by engaging in spiritual practice if you can. As I hope I have made clear, there is nothing mysterious about this. It consists in nothing more than acting out of concern for others. And provided you undertake this practice sincerely and with persistence, little by little, step by step, you will gradually be able to reorder your habits and attitudes so that you think less about your own narrow concerns and more about others. In doing this, you will find that you enjoy peace and happiness yourself. Relinquish your envy. Let go of your desire to triumph over others. Instead, try to benefit them. With kindness, with courage and confident that in doing so you are sure to meet with success. Welcome others with a smile. Be straightforward and try to be impartial. Treat everyone as if they were a close friend. I say this as neither the Dalai Lama nor as someone who has special powers or ability. Of these, I have none. I speak as a human being, one who, like yourself, wishes to be happy and not to suffer. If you cannot, for whatever reason, be of help to others, at least don't harm them. Consider yourself a tourist. Think of the world as it is seen from space, so small and insignificant, yet so beautiful. Could there really be anything to be gained from harming others during our stay here? It is not preferable, and is it not preferable and more reasonable to relax and enjoy ourselves quietly, just as if we were visiting a different neighborhood? Therefore, if in the midst of your enjoyment of the world, you have a moment, try to help in however small a way those who are downtrodden and those who, for whatever reason, cannot do or help themselves. Try not to turn away from those who appear, whose appearance is disturbing, from the ragged and unwell. Try never to think of them as inferior to yourself. If you can, try not Even to think of yourself as better than the humblest beggar. You will all look the same in your grave. To close with, I would like to share a short prayer which gives me great inspiration in my quest to benefit others. May I become at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross a bridge for those with rivers to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those who lack shelter, and a servant to all in need." So as we continue to hear Venerable children unpack these very beautiful teachings that she's heard for the last 40-plus years in this life, who knows how many lifetimes, and we conti- continue to hear His Holiness of Dalai Lama expound the Dharma of the Buddha, uh, it, gave, it gives me great hope that we are, you know, really in a very... If you want to talk about privilege, let's talk about the privilege of being interested in spiritual practice. That's one place where I think we can use that word, and it's a good use of the word, and to do whatever we can to keep ourselves focused on, you know digging out these hidden biases that could erupt into anger and worse, that will shut people out and instead just fill our heart with love and compassion for those as we understand where they're coming from and um, continue to learn how to cultivate our wisdom and compassion for others.